We can be assured, as I was saying as we start this meeting, we have a hope. We have a hope. You know, I've been thinking a lot, and I'm not going to preach on this today, but I was thinking a lot about everything about God is governmental. It's not political. Okay, so think about this. When South Africa wins the World Cup, hey, this guy sneaks in the front here and comes and lands Everest. Yay. He says, I'm big man. Come stand up next to me here. Check this big guy. Good to see you. Married and living in Joburg, eh? Gautengeleng. Great to see you, my brother. Fantastic. Yo, let's go. Fantastic. He's sneaking, sitting in the front row. Good to see you. But when we win the World Cup, 95, 2007, 2019, what does it do for our country? 2023, next year, yeah, yeah, so much win it there again. What does it do? It breeds hope. And we're like, yes, look at this nation. We can do it. We can be together. Come on, hope, hope, hope. But does it ever bring change? No, it doesn't. Okay? Because it's not governmental. Okay? And everything about the church is governmental. About the people of God. How's the big guy? Hey? Everything about the church is governmental. How we operate and how we do it. But so we have a hope because we are a legislative body as the ecclesia. And we speak about the hope that we have in Christ this morning. You see, despite your circumstances... Despite what you might be walking through, there's a lady in our church that messaged me yesterday. Her young son, young son in Zimbabwe, committed suicide yesterday. And she's had to travel up. Her circumstances are not good for her right now. Her heart is broken. But it doesn't mean she doesn't have hope. No. She still has hope. You see, hope, it's hope beyond the grave. It's hope beyond circumstances. And this is what we've been speaking about through December in the, the understanding of this new covenant and just telling the story of Jesus coming to earth. So when you read all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke was the only one who wasn't a Jew. Luke was a Gentile. He's the only Gentile that's got a book that's written in the Bible and in knowledge because he wrote it from a perspective from his side of being a Gentile, the story, and he felt he needed to tell as a doctor the story of this birth. You need to know these details. Matthew's the only other one that speaks about the birth of Jesus. Mark and John, that's fine. That's, that's part of the story, but we're going on to the meat now. And John starts, you know, but the Word became flesh. And Mark starts in, in the beginning as well with John the Baptist and that. Luke and Matthew are the only two that acknowledge the birth of Jesus. And it's a very important to acknowledge this, because if you don't acknowledge this, you won't believe in Him now. And our lives reflect what we believe in and what we worship and if you don't worship him, you're going to worship something else. So I was talking to Sean Monemo. We all know Sean, who's in uh, the States playing rugby at the moment. And I was catching up with him last night and just talking about, you know, where he's at and how things. He says, bro, I've been able to meet some very influential and very important people here in America. But he says, the thing that helps me is that when I look at these guys, I realize there's someone bigger than you. There's someone more important than you. And it gives me perspective. You're a human just like me. I worship one far higher. That's why celebrity status is such a big thing in the world, because people worship people. If you don't worship people, we worship the one true God. Amen. So we're going to continue the story. Okay, reading, we're going to read from Matthew. We're going to read Matthew 1 and 2 this morning, which in theory can be part of our end times discussion, because this is the new covenant that has come down to us now, and we read and speak about all these things. So let's go. Slide one, Elabella. Let's roll. Okay. Sorry? That's right. I have a secretary here that sits and tells me and reminds me of things and stuff. So 
if we could just with the kids like we did last week, just tone it down slightly. That does help. Thanks, Liam, for being so good, buddy. For just being so good, bro. Awesome, eh? But uh, yeah, kids, and then just a reminder, sorry, I did WhatsApp you yesterday, but on Saturday, this, at the end of this week, we're going to have a church meeting at 10 o'clock on Saturday night, okay? And we're going to worship in the new year, but there's going to be no Sunday morning meeting here on the 1st of January, okay? So you can chill out, you can try and go to the beach, you can do whatever you want to do, but we're going to be on Saturday evening from 10 o'clock, and uh, we'll WhatsApp in the week to remind you about that. Again, is that all, secretary, general secretary, thank you. Okay, let's go. This is the scroll of the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David and descendant of Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had a son named Judah. He, is the, he, he and his brothers became the tribes of Israel. Judah and Tamar... Now, you'll notice in this genealogy is that four ladies' names are mentioned. Tamar, you've got Rahab, you've got Ruth, and you've got Bathsheba. They get mentioned in this genealogy as Matthew's writing it from Jacob's perspective. Luke 3 writes the genealogy from Mary's family side. So you can see the two of the descendants in the line of David. Okay? Judah and Tamar had twin sons, Perez, that is not Sergio, that raises for Red Bull, and Sarah. Perez had a son named Hezron, who had a son named Ram, who had a son named Abinabad, who had a son named Nashon, who had a son named Salmon, who, along with Rahab, had a son named Boaz, Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, who was the father of Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David, who became the king then David and Bathsheba, who had, had a son named Solomon. Just think of the things around those people's names. The things that happened, they're still being acknowledged, okay, in the line of Jesus, who had a son named Solomon, who had a son named Rehoboam, who had a son named Abijah, who had a son named Asa, who had a son named Jehoshaphat, who had a son named Joram, who had a son named Uzziah, who had a son named Jotham who had a son named Uzzah, who had a son named Hezekiah, who had a son named Manasseh, who had a son named Amos, who had a son named Josiah, who was the father of Jeconiah. It was during the days of Jeconiah and his brothers that Israel was taken captive and deported to Babylon. About this time of their captivity in Babylon, Jeconiah and his, had a son named Sheltiel, who had a son named Zerubbabel, who had a son named Obud, who had a son named Elakim, who had a son named Azor, who had a son named Zadok, who had a son named Achim, who had a son named Elul, who had a son named Elazar, who had a son named Matan, who had a son named Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Anointed One. So from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the Babylonian captivity, 14 generations. And from the Babylonian captivity to Christ, 14 generations. Now you're probably wondering, Sheldon, you did not need to read all those names that you can actually hardly pronounce. That don't mean anything to us. Okay? 
There's a purpose that Matthew wrote this. There's, there's a reason he's writing and putting these words down because he is wanting the reader from the beginning of his letter to see the focus of his book, that the prophecies that spoke about this king are true and that he was born in the line of David. He's making a point here, okay? See, because there was been no one on the throne for 600 years that was in the line of David. Herod, who was currently on the throne as king, was not part of the line of David. They were waiting for a king in the line of David. You see, this is the reason why there's a great interest for the Jews in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, but very little to the Gentiles. We as Gentiles sit here, Russell, maybe the only man, to do, was that interesting for you? That was amazing. He's a Jewish man. But as Gentiles, we don't regard this as much. Luke regards it from Mary's perspective in his writings as a Gentile man. Okay? And he also, as, he also follows the father's line, as I was saying here, for Matthew. Because in Jewish eyes, the legal rights mattered. And this was through the father's line. Even though Jesus was not physically related to Joseph, they had to, he wanted to prove to people that it was in the line of David that this Jesus, this anointed one, was going to be born. And notice that he says, Joseph, the mother of Jesus, not the father of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Joseph wasn't the real father, yet he did father him here on this earth. So in Jews' minds, the family tree determines the person. Okay, when you follow those lines, 42 generations, that's hundreds and hundreds of years proving, and then David comes through this. And these three generations are broken into eras. You see, from Abraham to King, to King David was the prophets. From David to exile was the kings, and from exile to Jesus was the priests that were leading Israel at that time. Let's go to the next one. Elabella. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. His mother, Mary, had promised Joseph to be his wife, but while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Her fiancé, Joseph, was a righteous man full of integrity and didn't want to disgrace her, but he learned of her pregnancy and he secretly planned to break the engagement. So what's Joseph thinking? He knows he didn't do it. Okay? So he's now thinking she's been unfaithful. And how can you fall pregnant on your own? Don't, don't give me these stories. But he's a man of integrity. So he'd rather just divorce her quietly, not to make a scene and bring her shame and embarrassment on what she's now going to have to carry because she's clearly done something wrong here. Okay? So in Jewish culture, an engagement was like a prenuptial contract that was set between two people and they entered in before witnesses, and this gave legal rights of the girl over the bridegroom, the, um, over the girl to the bridegroom, okay? To nullify this agreement, they needed to go through the whole formal divorce process because there was already a contract in place saying in a matter of time, it was about a year period, they would wait. She would still live with her parents, but over a year's period, they would have the second ceremony, which was the wedding, where they will then come together in holy matrimony. But there was already a contract in place, and he needed to divorce her to be able to break this contract in place. In, in Jewish culture, there's no distinction between fiancé and husband. There's no, there's no distinction. Once you make that agreement, you're together. 
And if you're going to break that agreement, you need to go through a legal process and have a divorce before you've even had your ceremony um, as, as the wedding, okay? And remembering in all of this, guys, Mary's about 14 years old, okay? It was, it was common in those days to marry young girls as teenagers because life expectancy was a lot, life expectancy was a lot less. So some say she might have even been at 13, 14 years old, okay? Now remember, Matthew, as he's writing this book, He's writing to new converts who, have, who have, are Jewish people that have converted to Christ. And he's now giving the story, telling everybody this Messiah, this anointed one that's coming. He's writing from a Jewish expectant of a Messiah. So he's not writing from a Jewish expectant waiting for the Messiah to come. But he's writing from a Christian perspective, experiencing already the Messiah has come and he's now reigning as king. That's the perspective he's writing from. Okay, and you see when Jews still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of September, beginning of October on our calendars, every year, what they're waiting for? They're waiting for the Messiah. 2,000 years later, there's still this expectation the Messiah could come. And they're waiting for somebody in the line of David to come through. Okay? This is the center of their hope. But we already have hope that's alive and with us. See, this time that they're living in now, that they see this present age, they call the present age of evil. That's how a Jewish perspective would be for the times now. And they believe the world is currently run by Satan. And they're expectantly hoping and waiting for this Messiah to come. But for us, he's already come. And we already have this hope. That's why we can worship here this morning and celebrate this God and King and live lives of freedom on this earth. Okay, next slide, Elbel. While... Joseph now was still debating with himself about what to do. He fell asleep and had a supernatural dream. That's dream number one. Take note of how many dreams take place in these first two chapters. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, descendant of David, don't hesitate to take Mary into your home as your wife because the power of the Holy Spirit has conceived a child in her womb she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Savior. Okay, the word, the Hebrew word he said there is Yeshua. The word Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation, restoration, and deliverance. This is the Messiah who will come and redeem, restore, and save us. For he is destined to give his life to save his people from their sins. Now all this happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through his prophet. Now listen, a virgin will be pregnant. She will give birth to a son, and he will be known. Next one, Elabella. And he will be known as Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God became one of us, or God with us, God among us. And those prophecies are from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8. Now, when Joseph woke from his dream, he did all the angel had, uh, of the Lord instructed him to do. He took Mary to be his wife. So they had a ceremony, and they celebrated that they were now husband and wife. But he refrained from having sex until she gave birth to a firstborn son, whom they named Jesus. First dream took place. There's obedience. Straight away obedience to the first dream. Okay? That's chapter 1. Next slide, Elbel. Chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, near Jerusalem, during the reign of King 
Herod. Now, it's very important to know some things about this king, Herod, at the time, okay? This, the name Herod was given to the royal family at that time. So Herod was often the name, like you had Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, Philippi Herod. They were names given to the royal family at that time, and Herod, the king Herod at this stage, was the, the king of the Jews um, and the time of Christ when Christ was born. Now, Herod the Great was the son of a guy called Antipater. Okay, now he originally ascended from the Edomites. Okay, and Edom is an area that comes right back all the way to Esau. Okay, so it was Jacob and Esau were born together. God chose Jacob. And the line of descendants kept going through the line of Jacob where the 12 tribes came from. Esau was the line where the Edomites came. And, and King Herod's line comes from that side. They were Edomites. Okay? Now, Herod's father, okay, was in charge of the governmental region of the south of Judea. So if you've got Jerusalem and Bethlehem in that southern area of Judea, is that where his father was the governor in that time? Okay? They were royal family of the Edomites. It's important to understand they were not Jews. They were originally not Jewish people. You can't just say because Esau is Jacob's brother, he was a Jew. So only the first time the word Jew is used in the Bible is when the people were leaving Egypt. Okay, and that was that chosen people. Not just because, oh, this is, this is Jacob's brother. No, he is not from the line that the Lord chose. So what happened was, in a time when there was things happening in that southern region and taking place, this family was forced to convert to Judaism. So he's a half Jew. He's not a full Jew. And he was King Herod over the Jews at that time. Okay? He was appointed King of Judea in about B.C. 40 by the Roman Senate. Okay? At the suggestion of Antony. You'll hear these names if you read Roman things and watch Roman kind of documentaries. And with the consent of Octavia. These are names we know and understand around those times. Okay? Now, King Herod. He knew he could never be an emperor or something great in the Roman kind of world. He loved Roman culture. He uh, went and studied in Rome, and he wanted to copy everything about Rome. But he knew he could never be something high because he wasn't from the line or wasn't actually a Roman. So what he knew he could become was a king. But he was a very selfish, greedy man for power. He ended up murdering his own wife and his own children that were from a line of the Maccabees. Were a group of people that stood for certain truths in certain ways. He had them murdered so that line would be disappeared and gone and wouldn't be a part of anything. He was a cruel, cruel man. But he was hungry for power. And he studied in Rome and loved the culture. So what he did was he built a city called Caesarea, which is on the coast in Israel. And this became the capital of Israel, of his reign, where he had this whole area that he covered and was king over. And he built that to, to show how great he was because he wanted to copy Rome. He wanted to set up this port, this incredible kind of place to show how powerful and how mighty he was. This is the same king that after the temple had been destroyed, he was trying to win back favor from the Jewish people because he was clearly ostracized because he supported the Romans far more. He wasn't taxed by Roman culture, so he was very wealthy. So what did he do for them? I will build you a temple. And he tried to win favor with the Jewish people, but it never gained their favor. This, the temple was bigger and more illustrious than Solomon's temple that was built. And this is the one that was destroyed in 70 AD. 
This is the man we're dealing with that is hungry for power, greed, wealth. Does not look very different to the people we have in governmental positions in our world right now, right? Correct. Okay, he died at about the age of 70, and in his 37th year, he, he, he died in 4 B.C. Okay, now it's important by that timing of him dying, we can then acknowledge and be able to figure out exactly when John the Baptist and Jesus was born. B.C., meaning before Christ and A.D., after death, and it means they've got different terms they're using for it now, but it didn't, it didn't sit on zero. It doesn't be like B.C. goes up to zero, or Jesus born on zero, some, some Greek, I think it was a um, historian or something, Diosoni or something his name, he, he did a miscalculation, okay, from 583 when having to leave Babylon and be in Babylon all this time, he miscalculated, and so Jesus was actually born in about 5 or 6 BC, okay, and not on zero, because King Herod died in 4 BC, and clearly Jesus was alive when King Herod was alive, because we'll read the story as it goes out. This is interesting facts. And so after Jesus, Jesus' birth, a group of spiritual priests from the east came to Jerusalem and inquired of the people, where is the child who is born king of the Jewish people? We observe his star rising in the sky, and we've come to bow before him in worship. Now, it's very important to understand who these guys are, okay? They were essentially astrologers. So astrologers were known as dream interpreters. Interpreters, sorry. Okay, now they're traveling. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say there were three wise men. And therefore, so you read in Genesis, it's how many, we always go two by two. But you know, there are times it says there's seven of every kind. We have these stories that build narratives for us and we just follow them. The kids drew pictures here last week, innocently drawing three wise men. The Bible never says three wise men. You see how we follow narratives that the world has played over and over and over and over and for us, and we hang with this beautiful little story. Yes, we celebrate Jesus. He's alive. He came. But who shifted the narrative? Who changed the story? Like I keep telling you, it's our story. Don't listen to the way it's being told and it's all sweet and nice. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No, he's a mighty warrior waiting to return and to set an order on this earth because he's our king. So there weren't three. They, were, they say there was probably an entourage, a caravan of about a hundred people that pulled into Bethlehem. Now remember, Bethlehem was maybe only a thousand people. Okay? And there were obviously more people over that time. Um, if this was the census, they traveled back and had the baby and done all those things that played out. An entourage of about a hundred people are going to make a scene. They're going to realize that they've arrived in town. Who are these people? Okay, they were known in Greek as Magi's or Magos, okay, and these names were given to these guys in Babylonian times. Okay, now track with me. We've been going through all the years now. Watch how this follows. The Medes, the Persianites, and others, and they were given the name of wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, augurs, soothsayers, etc., etc. Okay, and the Ori Oriental wise men, who have, having discovered by the rising of a remarkable star, that the Messiah had just been born, so he came to Jerusalem to worship him. So there were more than a thousand people. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem. They, appointed, they were appointed by Darius over the state of Persia, which is now modern-day Israel. They were official advisors to the king. Okay. 
So when Jesus was born, Persia had been conquered by the successors of Alexander the Great. Okay, this history of all these names that are played through now. Now tell me, who was a Hebrew in Babylonian times? Okay, Daniel, what was Daniel regarded as? What, what was the title that Daniel was given? Okay, now we're going back hundreds of years, okay? We're in the year zero, around zero, yeah, that's around 4 BC. Hundreds of years ago. Listen to what Daniel, it says about, he was named and called the chief of the magicians. Who were these guys? Astrologers, dream interpreters, all these guys who understood these kind of things around the world. Listen to what it says. Now Daniel, we know, interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, okay, where he sees this kind of figure and Daniel interprets it for him. Then it says in Daniel 5, when Nebuchadnezzar is dead and his son, Balthasar, is now the king in Babylon, and he is clearly a party animal. All he wants to do is drink and have a jaw, okay? And there's the writing on the wall that happens. And they get the fright of their lives because this finger appears and starts writing on the wall next to them. I think we would also have a lack of scratch if that wall, something started writing there. We were then questioned. This is what they say. Now listen about Daniel. And they're saying, now, who's going to interpret what these words say? It says in Daniel 5.11, There is a man in your kingdom who is, uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Now these guys weren't Jews. They weren't believers in God. They had their own religion. Okay? And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, listen here, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers. That's who David was in charge of in the Babylonian times. So now there's a very strong possibility that Daniel, with all his training that he gave, and speaking of all these things that will take place, trained the descendants of these spiritual priests that arrived to stand in front of Jesus. Our God doesn't miss a beat. Hundreds of years ago, these guys were descendants of training where Daniel would have trained these guys. These wise men were coming to bow and worship is a prelude, a prelude to what the nations will do one day in bowing to King Jesus. Okay, they were Gentiles. They were outside of the story. They were coming to bow because they acknowledged as astrologers, they saw a star in the sky. We, unfortunately, I'm not going to get into this. Astrology has been tainted and taken away and made an evil thing. Okay, you can read signs in the stars. If you understand them and you know their ways. Astrology, that's what it is. David understood those things. And he prophesied and spoke about this Messiah that would come. And he trained guys. You're sure he would have told them about these things that would come in due time. And here we are sitting at the forefront of it. Next slide, Ella. King Herod was shaken. Now remember who he is. Wicked man. King Herod was shaken to the core when he heard this. And not only he, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed when they heard this news. So he called a meeting of all Jewish ruling priests and religious scholars, demanding that they tell him where the promised Messiah was prophesied to be born. He will be born in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, they told him. Because the prophecy states, And you, little Bethlehem, and not insignificant among the clans of Judah, for out of you will emerge the shepherd king of my people Israel, meaning the leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Micah 2 says this, 5-2, that says, Out of you will come to me a ruler who will be king of Israel. Prophesied 
hundreds, there were hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. Then Herod secretly summoned the spiritual priests from the east to ascertain the exact time the star first appeared. Now, what is he under threat? He's under threat by a baby, but he's under threat that everybody is acknowledging this guy from hundreds of years ago. Who is this person? This Messiah, King. He's not going to upset my throne. No way. It's not under my watch, he would say. Um, and he told them, now go to Bethlehem and carefully look there for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I can go and bow down in worship to him too. The Bible also has lies in it. He's lying. There's no ways he wants to go and worship this king. He's a power-hungry mongrel for power. He wants to take and see who this king is to ensure that he's more powerful. Who's this king? So on their way to Bethlehem, these spiritual priests, the same star they had seen in the east suddenly reappeared. Amazed, they watched as it went ahead of them and stopped directly over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were so ecstatic that they shouted and celebrated with unrestrained joy. Now, the commentators in that line of trying to, trying to uh, translate the Greek that's being said there is that they're saying and, 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 and so happy and trying to say joy so many times. This is how the sentence should actually read. They rejoiced with a great joy exceedingly. They were ecstatic about the star that reappeared in front of them because of hundreds of years ago that they've been taught through descendants and then be passed on right from Daniel's time that there will be a star appearing. It's now happening. Right in front of their eyes, and they're seeing it take place. And they are witness to it, and they've come to bow down and worship this king. <coughs> and when they came into the house and saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests, full of gifts, and presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, these were extremely wealthy people. Now, the reason they're also traveling with about 100 people in a caravan is protection because they carry a lot of wealthy goods with them. And they travel with these things to present to this king who they've been heard about and the prophecies are spoken about this star that will rise and there he is, okay? They had great sums of money, treasure chests of financial wealth. Frankincense and myrrh in those days was very, very costly, okay? We can't put a value to it. We don't understand what that would be for us now. The money financed that would now given to them would finance everything that Mary and Joseph would need to be able to get to Egypt and for years now would be their supply and God provided for them. How incredible is that? I just think if God goes to the extent to send these guys because of a star and they come and bring all these gifts to him and it's provision for them so they can actually live and do what they need to do for the next couple of years, God can also provide for you. He is that God. He provides all our needs. He is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. You see, the gold is often a symbol of the deity of Christ. The frankincense points to the perfect life of holiness. And the myrrh is an embalming spice and speaks of the suffering that Christ would lead to the cross in love for us. How symbolic are each of those gifts that they give to our Lord and Savior here? Lying in a manger as a little baby and they're honoring and worshiping this God and King. Okay, and afterwards they returned to their own country by another route because God warned them in a dream. 
not to go back to Herod. Second dream, just in two chapters. And after that gone, Joseph had another dream. Third dream. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Now get up and flee to Egypt. Take Mary and the little child and stay there until I tell you to leave. For Herod intends to search for the child to kill him. So that very night, they got up. That very night, eh? this is obedience. That very night, he got up and he took Jesus and his mother and made their escape to Egypt and remained there until Herod died. And that's around 4 BC. So Jesus was probably around about one, two, probably two years old. And all of this fulfilled was what the Lord had spoken through his prophet. And it says, I summoned my son out of Egypt. Isaiah 11, 1 says, when, a, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. So he sent soldiers with orders to slaughter every baby boy two years older and younger in Bethlehem throughout the surrounding countryside based on the time frame he was given from interrogating the wise men. How cruel. How cruel is a man? How insecure is a man that has to kill every baby that he's threatened by? We have, we have insecure leaders in governments today. They're these kind of people who cannot handle truth and the true power of our living God. Jesus was yet a baby, but the prophecies threatened this king. Wow. This fulfilled the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And it says, I hear the screams of anguish, weeping and wailing in Raman. Rachel is weeping uncontrollably for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they are dead and gone. You see, Rachel is, there, is a metaphor for all of Israel that's taken place there. And that was spoken about in Jeremiah 31. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord again appeared to Joseph in a dream. Fourth dream. And while he was still in Egypt saying, Go back to the land of Israel and take the child and his mother with you. For those who sought to kill the child are dead. So he awoke and took Jesus and Mary and returned to the land of Israel. I mean, how he, he awoke and went. The dreams are not before. He awoke and went. Obedience, guys. And when he heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, he was just as cruel, had succeeded him as ruler over all the territory of Judah, he was afraid to go back. And then he had another dream, the fifth dream from God, warning him to avoid that region and instructing him instead to go to the province of Galilee. So he settled his family in the village of Nazareth. Fulfilling the prophecy that would be known as the branch. Now, very interesting. The root Hebrew word, okay, for branch or sprout is Nazareth or Nazarene, okay? And now Jesus is often referred to as the branch. In, test, in, in, in hundreds of years ago, prophets, prophetic words, Daniel 11, 7 says this, And from a branch, from a root, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and then to the fortress of the king of the north, and they shall deal with them and shall prevail. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. This is 700 years ago. Eh? And from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Listen to this. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Many commentators say that that Isaiah 11 passage is speaking of the seven spirits of God. Those seven things, okay? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, 
knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit read Zechariah 3.8 says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And he ends up staying in a place called Nazareth, which means the branch. Again, I remind you, our God doesn't miss a beat. So you can be assured that over your life, we celebrate this king today, he doesn't miss a beat. What did Joseph do with all those dreams? He listened and he obeyed. God spoke. See, we don't know if Joseph was a dreamer. You know, he's like, well, this is normal. I have dreams. I know. You don't know. But God spoke and he obeyed. When I said last week, yeah, we are hidden in Christ. When we remain in him, that's where our security is. That's where our safety is. We remain in this king and our Lord. So I want to remind you as we wrap up here this morning, okay? This is our story. This is our story to tell, to, to, to hold close to our hearts. That our king came. If government, earthly government was so threatened by a baby, okay, the prophecies from old were true. We are not waiting for the Messiah. Our Messiah has arrived. He has conquered all. He reigns on high. Okay? And the world is constantly trying to water this story down and keep him as a baby. Yes, we will celebrate. We celebrate birthdays. We look at those moments. But I don't keep going back to Aiden when he was born. Look at you now, pal. Look at each other. Look at you. We don't keep going back all the time. Oh, well, when you were a baby, when you were a baby, when you were a baby. No, we talk about what's happening in our lives and what we've done for those that have gone ahead of us. We talk about what they did on this earth, not what they were when they were a baby. We don't keep him there, but we celebrate. And we're so thankful that God would come in a way that would defy the world's system and defy the world. Okay? He's not a baby anymore. Okay? Here are the key prophecies, and I want to finish by reading this one in Isaiah. Okay? And this, this passage in Isaiah is the only time the word government is used in the Bible. It's, it's a Hebrew word, and it's used twice in the same chapter. And you know that which says the government will be on his shoulders. Everything about God and his church and who he is is governmental. We have to be governmental in the way we think. A king arrived as a baby. And I want to read this from the, the Passion again. And I'll read a bit of a passage here. It says, no more gloom. For those who are in distress, it starts in chapter 9. Although the Lord greatly humbled the region of Zebulun and Naphtalia, He will one day bestow upon them great honor from the Mediterranean eastward to the other side of the Jordan and throughout the Galilee of the Gentiles. Those who walked in darkness have seen a radiant light shining upon them, then once lived in the shadows of death, but now a glorious light has dawned. Lord, you have multiplied the nation and given them overwhelming joy. This is now 700 years ago, Isaiah is speaking over this nation. They are ecstatic in your presence and rejoice like those who bring in a great harvest and those who divide up the spoils of victory. For you have broken the chains that have bound your people and lifted off the heavy bar across their shoulders, the rod the oppressor used against them. You have shattered all their bondage, just as you did when Midian's army were defeated. Every boot of marching troops and every uniform caked with blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. He's speaking of victory. There's victory coming to this people. And then he breaks into verse 6 and says, A child will be born for us. A son 
has been given to us. The responsibility of complete dominion will rest on his shoulders. Government, it says their rule and dominion will be on his shoulders. And his name will be the wonderful one, the extraordinary strategist, the mighty God, the father of eternity, the prince of peace. Great and vast is his dominion. He will bring immeasurable peace and prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom to establish and uphold it by promoting justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The marvelous passion that the Lord Yahweh, commander of angel armies, for he has his people, will ensure that it is finished. The Lord decreed a word against Jacob and he brought calamity upon Israel, all the people of Ephraim and Samaria knew it. This is our king who we get to celebrate. 700 years ago, these prophecies spoken about this Lord. 2,000 years later now, we live in the fullness and the fullness of this. Go and be the light. When it says that he will bring peace and prosperity, we still have peace in our hearts. There's chaos around, but we have peace. Prosperity is living in the fullness of who we are in Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Now go and celebrate with your families and go and enjoy this time together honoring our King.